Hey, Adam here. Before we get going with part two of my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha, I want to remind you about how you can personally put me to work, all right? In an effort to show you how much I'm willing to hustle and keep this show alive, I created a services page over at dogsinourworld.com. If you would like to talk with me about your dog, you can use dogsinourworld.com to book a Skype or FaceTime chat with me. Doesn't matter where you live. If you do happen to live in the uh, Seattle-Tacoma area of Washington, you can hire me for a private in-home consultation. Consider recruiting me to talk to your business or group about a wide variety of topics regarding both dogs and people. So check out the services page and send me a message over at dogsinourworld.com. And hey, if you have any other ideas about how I can continue funding this project, I am all ears, all right? Let's get started with part two of my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha. Welcome to part two of the season finale of Dogs in Our World. I'm Adam Winston. This episode is all about dogs and science. Dr. Jim Ha is a certified applied animal behaviorist and longtime professor from University of Washington. He now lives in the Florida Keys with his wife and fellow behaviorist, Renee Ha. Most of Dr. Jim Ha's work and teaching actually now focuses on the animals that are in our world, such as dogs and cats. In part one of our conversation, we learned that there has been a surprising little amount of science done on dogs compared to other species, and that this continued lack of canine science could eventually culminate in a public health issue here in the United States. Let's not waste any more time and get going with part two of my extended interview with Dr. Jim Ha. You are listening to Dogs in Our World a show that explores the history, science, and importance of the domestic dog. Here's your host, Adam Winston. Now, the next question I have is probably a whole episode or even series to itself. And if you feel it's too much to get into now, that's fine. But has has technology helped us get more science? Has technology helped us in the field of dog research? Yeah, you're, you're right. It it, it could be a whole series, yeah. um, certainly a whole episode. Uh, science is, you know, technology has revolutionized um, the study of behavior, um, the study of dog and cat behavior. Just look at what we're doing with critter cams and putting cameras on cats to see how many birds they actually uh, catch. That's right. Uh, Talked about ability that to, one. Yeah. Ability to track the movements of dogs outside very precisely, GPS, movement of dogs inside. I, I've been involved in the development of some of this technology. Um you know, well, is the technology behind the revolution and the speed of genetics, of course, and DNA and, and sequencing and, and things like that. So um, there certainly is opportunities for um, people interested in technology to, to expand into what I think is a huge business, um, tracking the health, uh, wearing collars that track the health and behavior of, of your dogs and your cats. Um, I've got some ideas if anybody's got funding, you know, um, there's that technology can really revolutionize how we collect data drones being able to watch the behavior of animals you think there's a whole above. untapped uh, you think there's a whole untapped oh. business opportunity to yep. incorporate yep. 
new technologies yep. to get yeah more and, research, and the uh, issue is the issue is that you know i'm a scientist i'm a geek i don't know anything about money i don't know anything about venture capital i don't know anything about business um it's marrying the people who have the ideas about um the science of monitoring dog movements and social behavior in dog parks using drones from above cameras from above oh my god and image tracking software let me I just mean, say right now if you're listening to the show and you're someone who's looking for a new business venture or an untapped market i get i get i get a piece of this <laughs> i want in on this okay finder's fee i want absolutely percent it is it is broadcast now yeah it, it 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 you know and opportunities like this adam are exactly why I want to get the word out because there's there are a lot of exciting opportunities, but it's it's really bringing together as always bringing together the scientists and the and the venture capitalists and the business people you know and and it's that's not a world I circulate in and I would love to do that and and um, um, oh we haven't even started talking about shelter science you know the science what of do you mean by making that? the line. The, the science, applying science to make the lives of dogs passing through as temporarily as possible, we hope, in shelters. Oh, God, Can yeah. we improve the experience? Shelter trauma is a major issue in the United States in dogs and cats right now. Can we and, – and, and how much science do we have on ways to improve that? Almost nothing. Um, uh, and could we improve that? And, and in some cases, using some nice technology um, – I've prototyped some of that. Um, so just the whole idea of shelter science and, and improving improving the how we handle these companions of ours when they have to pass through a shelter experience. Um, but again, full of opinions, uh, full of ideas, uh, not many facts, not much science. Fascinating. I asked Dr. Ha to give us some cold, hard definitions, so we're all on the same page. Also, this upcoming segment of our chat is especially useful information for any of you who have a pet or are thinking of giving your career with animals a boost. So what is a behaviorist then? So the problem here is that anybody can be a behaviorist. Um, there's actually no flat definition. There's no, it's not registered, trademarked or anything else. Anybody can be a behaviorist. Anybody can be, um, an animal behaviorist. Um, you watch birds in your backyard, you know something about their behavior when they feed, when they don't feed, how they interact with other species of birds in your backyard. You're an animal behaviorist. Um, there is no, the way I look at it is that there is a whole field of animal behavior and, uh, academically, academic animal behavior, research-based animal behavior. And there's a whole field, professional organizations, professional scientific journals. Um, you know, I would expect you, if you're going to say you're an academic animal behaviorist, to be a member of those organizations and, and so on. But, hey, any, anybody can call themselves an animal behaviorist. Um, and anybody can join our professional organization. And that's why we as a professional organization a number of years ago as the field of applied animal behavior developed. I was about to say, what's the organization you're, you're talking about? And this is the Animal Behavior Society. Yeah. Okay. And in Europe, it would be uh, Association for the Study of Animal Behavior. Uh, that's out of the UK and, and is sort of the professional organization for Europe and, and um, Eurasia, Africa. And then... Um, the Animal Behavior Society is the or professional organization for um, the Americas. 
So um, that's why we developed a certification program. Veterinarians did the same thing. Veterinarian, very few veterinarians get much behavior education in vet school. It's not required as for your vet license. And so um, there were a group of veterinarians who actually went and got extra training as in animal behavior. Um, there are academic animal behaviorists who have gone and gotten extra training in applied animal behavior and dog and cat behavior and zoo animal behavior and, and how we apply what we've learned about animal behavior to animals in the world around us. We had to identify ourselves. And so both the veterinarians as well as the academic animal behaviorists, let's say the PhD and master's degrees, have developed certification programs. So the highest level of certification, the, the fact that you know that this person knows something about dog and cat livestock, zoo animal behavior, is that they are a certified applied animal behaviorist. That means something. That has a professional certification board behind it, records, recertification every five years. That is a trademark name that cannot be used by anyone who is not a certified applied animal behaviorist. At the master's level, you could be an associate certified applied animal behavior. So there's CABs and ACABs. On the vet side, there is now an American Board of Veterinary Behavior. And you can be a veterinarian, must be a veterinarian to be a member of it, and have gone through the screening um, to be a diplomat of that board. And so you are a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, just as you can be a board-certified uh, oncologist or a board-certified veterinary dentist. Um, there now is a board-certified veterinary behaviorist. And those people, you know what their qualifications are, you know what their records are, you know what their liability insurance is, and, and so on. That's the highest level. And, and those people certainly are qualified to call themselves, you know, not just behaviorists, certainly they're behaviorists, certainly they're animal behaviors, but they are certified, small c, certified animal behaviors. Below that is where it gets murkier. And there are many for-profit programs that, that you can go through, get education, and get certification through. Um, for instance, um, my wife and I established uh, the um, certificate program at the University of Washington, which you are familiar with, to provide education online um, through an academic institution from certified applied animal behaviorists. Um, just because there was so much bad information floating around out there. But there are other groups that certainly certify trainers. When I have a challenging dog training situation that I've diagnosed, I readily say there are good trainers in the Seattle area or the Florida Keys area that can help you fix this better than me. I, I don't call myself a trainer and I, they shouldn't be calling themselves a behaviorist. But quite frankly, it, it's not illegal. It's not, it's not licensed. It's not certified. And so what I always say is anybody can call themselves a behaviorist. It's all about the credentials. I've argued that the students that come out of our certificate program at the University of Washington 
absolutely should be calling themselves behaviorists with some pride because they have more background in animal really? behavior and applied animal behavior than most the vast majority of people calling themselves behaviorists. Of course you're behaviorists. You're giving me a green no, light. I'm not saying, Are you giving me a green I, light to call myself a behaviorist? I, you have I, my back. I absolutely recommend it, and I tell them I will absolutely – I'll write you a letter anytime. You're you are telling me that I, I can go to my website right absolutely. now on the About page and update my bio to say Adam is not only a dog trainer, he is also a dog behaviorist. Is there is yes. there is there a differentiation between dog behaviors and animal behaviors? Because I honestly know more about dog behaviors. I think you're an with going through our program. I think you're an animal behaviorist. We do. We talked about crows. We talked about horses. We talked about you're an animal behaviorist. You're an applied animal behaviorist. You are not a certified applied animal behaviorist. Okay. You are not a board certified vet, veterinary behaviorist. You have training. You're practicing. You, uh, I. You're an animal behaviorist. You're not at the same level I am. But you are certainly now, and you're way far ahead of a lot of dog trainers and so on, and owners and veterinarians. That absolutely, you've received our certificate, and I, so I, I, that's what I want. That's what I created the program for. You know more about animal behavior and certainly applied animal behavior than the vast majority of people out there calling themselves dog behaviorists. Why shouldn't you call yourself a behaviorist? Don't call yourself a certified applied animal behaviorist, and. It's a buyer beware situation. Somebody needs a dog behaviorist. They should be looking at their credentials. That's the bottom line. Either go for a certified applied animal behaviorist or a board certified veterinarian. And if not, look at their credentials. Do they have a certificate in applied animal behavior from the University of Washington? Are they CPDTKA? Um, that means certified uh, you know, professional dog trainer. KA certified, is knowledge assessed. Just certified pet business. dog trainer. Certified pet dog Certi trainer, CPDT. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always thought it was professional too, but I believe it's hold certified up, hold pet up. dog. I'm going to look that up right now because I'm actually trying to, I'm actually uh, signing up for the next certification exam and I'm pretty sure it's C and the website is ccpdt.org. Hold on, man. I got to, I got to look this one up here because. And I uh, always get confused between that and APDT, so, so which is uh, related to them. Certification for professional dog trainers. So CCPDT. Org. It stands for Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers. No, it is professional. Okay. Because I was corrected by a couple people one time. I think they refer to it, they refer to the certification as CPDT, Certified Professional Dog Trainer, but the website and official name is Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers. And since What's I first... APDT? Uh, APDT is Association of, I think, Pet Dog Trainers. APDT. Okay, that's where I'm getting it mixed up. Hold up. That's where I'm getting it mixed up. I am Somebody a member of APDT, but the APDT doesn't necessarily recommend, um, doesn't have the same requirements or as much requirements as CBDT. So APDT is the Association no, of Professional... So APDT is the Association no. of Professional Dog Trainers. It's always been, even with just the trainers, a buyer beware, get the testimonials, look at how many years they've been in the business, look at what kind of training they've continued to get. You know, um, and it, yeah, it's an unregulated business. We'll continue this extended interview with Dr. Jim Ha in a moment. If you have gained anything from this series, if you've learned anything interesting from any of these episodes, please 
let me know on one of our social media pages. All of our links can be found at the top right corner of dogsinourworld.com. And also, by the way, Instagram users, you can use the hashtag dogsinourworld when posting pictures of the dogs in your world. Back in a moment. Support Dogs in Our World by making a donation. This fun and informative show is free to the public, but it's not free to produce. Every dollar donated goes directly towards production expenses. Help Adam improve the lives of dogs and people through more episodes just like this one. Donate today at dogsinourworld.com. Adam will be right back with more Dogs in Our World. For more information about this show, visit the episodes page at dogsinourworld.com. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Welcome back to the season finale of Dogs in Our World. I'm Adam Winston. In the last segment, Dr. Jim Hoff from University of Washington and I talked about the various certifying bodies that both dog owners and those of us looking to take our animal professions to the next level should be aware of. Now, I've been saving the best for last. Dr. Ha is going to start giving us, every single one of us, some practical advice on how we can better ourselves and the dogs in our world. Back to my conversation with Dr. Jim Ha. Tell me and each individual person listening, what can I do? What can we individually do to contribute to dog research, to uh, somehow, you know, uh, support more research being done. What can we do today? Well, you know, there's there's several different levels. The first thing is is let your, I mean, if you're really motivated about this, let your congressman know. Um, most funding for science in the United States comes from the federal government, and uh, I I would like to see and have spent time in Washington D.C. working on this. I would like to see better support for applied animal behavior issues, dog and cat behavior issues, um, it, it, you know, from the National Institute of Health, from the National Science Foundation. So, I mean, if you're really motivated or have the ear of someone, um, I, I think, I think dog, dog aggression alone um, and those issues around dog aggression should be enough to drive the demand for more and better research in dog behavior. Um, the, beyond that, you know, it's a money thing. And um, what I've asked people to do is is to be aware of of, of sources of funding, private foundations. Um, I never know when someday my words will inspire someone who has some funding, who has a private foundation. Um, and and finally, I think the other funding, potential funding source for this is is the pet food, you know, the pet, the pet industry, shall we say, the pet food, pet toys, and I'd like to see them. And again, I'd like to catch their ear um, to to try to motivate them to 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 fund better science. Um, get educated, you know, um, learn about dog behavior. There's a lot of good information. There's some great websites, and I try and disseminate those things like your podcasts. Get educated and get critical. Um, we're just we're just talking about. You know, what is a behaviorist? You know, we were giving you some tips about what does good science look like? 
what does a what does a, a good behavior dog behaviors look like? They have some credentials, so it's a lot of education, I think, uh, and spreading the word. And I and I think it's starting. You know, we're starting to hear more blogs about the importance of these things, but um, I think it's got to come from the grassroots demands at, at some level. some things that we can look at in the dogs that are around us in our world to kind of be amateur behaviorists. Does that make sense? No, I, I think, I think developing an eye for seeing behavior. And, um, so there's lots of great reading, John Bradshaw's books, um, McClosey's books, Adam McClosey's books are excellent. James Sir Powell just came out with his new domestic dog edition. Read those. They're accessible, you know, at certainly at some level by, educated lay people. I encourage, you know, all of my students go sit at a dog, off-leash dog park. They just sit and watch. And what do you see? And what do you see about body language? And what do you see about signals? And what do you see about the way dogs are glancing at each other and at owners? Um, and it's a real eye-opener just to start just seeing that thing. Beyond that, you know, I always encourage people to think about citizen science and and there are projects uh, brian Hare at duke university has some excellent citizen science projects that you can do with your dog and send the results to him and and you know contribute to his his research um clive win at arizona state university is, is doing some of that um you can travel a little bit if you're not in the right town and vi- and go to some of these scientific sessions there are scientific conferences on dog canine science and again you may not as an as an amateur as an as a home person you may not catch every subtlety and important detail of a presentation by adam mcclosey or clive Wynn or me or somebody but it's amazing how much you will absorb and how much you'll learn about the approach and how we think and how we ask questions and and i think it changes the way you interact with with dogs maybe even with humans and sort of other animals But that's why I find it so nope. weird that um, we don't have a whole lot of science in regards to dogs because they're so much easier to study than a wolf. Like you could go to the dog park and tick little boxes and observe and and you, there are shelters where they're all there, you know, in their kennels and you can observe and tick boxes. If you're saying that that one of us, you know, who aren't professional researchers can go to the dog park and learn so much and observe, then why – you know, there should be more science, right? It's They're right there. We don't have to go out to the frozen tundra and, and drag a bunch of equipment with us to study these, that's, these animals. That's, that's, that's right. And what it does take, because there's so much variability in dogs, for instance, is it takes very large sample sizes. I mean, it takes hundreds of hours of watching the dogs and ticking those boxes to get an adequate amount of data. It's right there. That's not hard to do, but it is time-consuming. And to analyze the data properly, and and time is money. Mm -hmm. And so is it feasible? Absolutely. Is it fundable? Nope. And I can tell you I have spent many dozens of hours writing proposals for good quality science. And if you put in the domestic dog, it's in the trash can. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, really, I mean— not even consideration. 
and um, I, I think it's slowly beginning to change. And that's my appeal is is to maybe some alternatives. The federal government and places that the National Science Foundation are going to be slow to change, but but I think a private foundations or the or the pet food industry. You know, could find, and they are. I mean, and they are. There, there are some efforts, even by the pet food industry. I'm involved in some fantastic research at Purdue University. Um, heading there, in fact, on Sunday to to do to, to consult with them. I'm part of the program there. You know, looking at um, uh, better care for for um, uh, kenneled dogs, dogs in kennels and shelters, and so on. So there's a little bit, you know, uh, being done. But you know, compared to how many people are out there studying killer whales or out there studying uh, lizards or out there studying, you know, other insects, um, it's amazing. What recommendations do you have to someone who is interested in professionally studying dogs? What they have to do is they basically have to get an undergraduate degree in a life science biology, uh, zoology, life sciences. It's called something different at different universities, but wherever the life science, biology degree, undergraduate degree is, um, and probably go on to get a master's degree. A master's degree, graduate school, is where you really get into doing research. Um, so if you're really interested in research and, and making a difference in dogs and, and dog science, you need to do research somehow, and that really requires a master's degree. And what? Um, in, in those life sciences. Again, again, in any of those life sciences. So there are no real master's or PhD or even undergraduate degrees in most cases in animal behavior. Your degree will be in or in, and your graduate degree will be in biology or zoology or something like that. But the work you do and the person you work with in your graduate degree, getting your master's degree in biology or whatever, will be doing animal behavior research. And that's how you're known is by the actual research you do. And so really to make a difference, to really do science these days, you, you need to get at least to the master's degree level. Uh, with the right experience working with dogs, you can then get associate certified applied animal behaviors with a master's degree. Um, and, and, and you can do research. And there are many master's degree people, um, ICABs, who are doing research in shelters, for instance. Shelters are beginning to hire some of those folks. Um, pet food industry is getting more and more interested in behavior and diet and behavior and things like that. If you if you really want to go further, then you continue from the master's into a PhD again, probably in zoology or biology. But your work would be in animal behavior, um, and we have a you know a pool of those folks who are getting PhDs working in in animal behavior and particularly applied animal behavior. Um, the other option, of course, less research focused, would be to go veterinary school. Um, and then on for the additional training after vet school in behavior to become board certified. But veterinarians are not really trained to do much research. And so if you really want to do the research side of things, that's that's not the path really is a master's degree and or a Ph.D. Okay. And that's why we developed our certificate program at the University of Washington was trying to fill in that gap. People who had undergraduate degrees or at least some undergraduate schooling um, Maybe not necessarily going to go on for master's degrees, but could understand and wanted that knowledge, you know, dog trainers, things like that, that have lots of practical knowledge. And we want to sort of provide that academic, um, modern animal behavior science perspective. And that's what we do in our online certificate program was to kind of try and fill in that gap. 
but a number of our students who, who have been undergraduates who have completed the certificate um, are now considering or are going on for master's degrees. What do you all think so far? I know there's a lot of information in this one, I know, but I, I usually say that this episode is for everyone, but really this episode is dedicated to all you dog geeks out there just like me. You know, those of you who really want to dig deeper into this stuff. Personally, I find everything that I've learned throughout this show and this year and this journey to be just absolutely fascinating. What do you all think? Let me know over at dogsinourworld.com. Coming up in the final part of this episode, Dr. Jim Ha will illuminate the next crossroads coming up in my path. I think you should listen in, so don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Why Does My Dog is a mobile-friendly resource that helps strengthen the bond between dogs and their owners. Take our videos with you on walks or anytime you're on the go. Learn how to train your dog with modern positive reinforcement techniques and watch entire lessons in short videos so you can spend less time training and more time playing. Discover new products that help improve your dog's quality of life. Have a burning question about dogs? Send us an email. Whydoesmydog.com. Dog info on the go. We'll be right back with more dogs in our world. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. You can also message us directly via the contact page at dogsinourworld.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome back to Dogs in Our World. I'm Adam Winston. And it was such an honor to have Dr. Jim Ha advise all of us who have a shared interest, as Temple Grandin says. Where are you at in your journey? I want this show to be a resource for all of you, whether you're a pet parent, a student, or someone who wants to work with dogs. So now listen in as Dr. Ha helps me wrap up this show and my personal journey by pointing me to a new crossroad. Moved out here to Seattle, and you were kind enough to meet with me. And I sat down, and never even, not even knowing you and you not knowing me, I said, what do you got for me? What can I do? What I walked away from that conversation with you was I need to, I want to be in the trenches. I want to take, I want to, I want to crash course in the tough jobs that many other dog professionals don't want to do. I started out by becoming a dog trainer at a big box store. And uh, now I'm working uh, also part-time as an animal care technician for a animal shelter. I'm also about to get my, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting my CPDT, Certified Professional Dog Trainer, credential here soon. Uh, and then now I've got the behavior credential from you. I've logged thousands of hours of hands-on training with multiple dogs and clients. And so my question to you now, two years later, is what do I do now? Where, what do I do now? Tell me what to do. I think you should get a master's degree. Dang it. I was hoping you weren't going to say that. I mean, you have two, you have really have two choices. One is to continue, simply continue. You've got a good, strong background, um, the book learning, the academics and so on. You can continue on that path and develop your own training business, 
behavior issues, business, in-home treatment of behavior issues. Learn as you go. Learn from everything you can read. Go to the meetings. Go to the conf- scientific conferences. Learn the keep up on the science and and just kind of go in that hands-on learning as you go direction. But for the best and the brightest, the people who are really motivated, you know, I think that you need credentials. You need, like we talked about earlier, you need credentials. And and people like you who have the drive to to learn about dogs and learn dog science and animal behavior in general, uh, you are the kind of people that we need at least getting a master's degree. I think a PhD probably is too much. It, it, that's not necessary. You'll price yourself out of job markets and so on. So I would not recommend... For most people, you know, unless that's really their passion to be at the university level, I wouldn't necessarily recommend a PhD. But I think you are all over the place fuel for a master's degree. And I think you would take that increased background, that research experience that you sound like you're hungry for, <laughs> uh, and, and, and you would really turn it into something really important. That's a wrap. That's a wrap for season one of Dogs in Our World. What an incredible year. I wish you all knew how much I appreciate you joining me on my journey. We started this season in the beginning by visiting a sanctuary of wolves. We traveled to Vashon Island in order to visit the great Temple Grandin. Dogs need paper. And while there, we discovered one of the nation's biggest sheep herding competitions. Today, we completed our journey by talking with Dr. Jim Ha. He equipped us with information that every one of us can use to help the dogs in our world. Research links and more information about Dr. Jim Ha can be found on the episode page at Dogs in Our World. As I said at the start, my work is only beginning. So please stay subscribed to this podcast feed because I have some more bonus material and other things I want to get into your ears. Don't forget to check out my services page at dogsinourworld.com and discover how you can hire me from anywhere in the world. Thank you again for being part of this journey, and I will talk to you soon. Hey, Adam here one last time. I couldn't officially wrap up this series without thanking the people who were instrumental in making this show happen. Thank you to Lisa Harper and her husband, Josh Crouchy. They are such good friends to me. That's Lisa's voice you hear in the show intro and most of the spots. And among other things, her husband, Josh, helped get the Dogs in Our World website up and running. Thank you to Rachel Sherman, whose voice you also hear in the show and is a big supporter. And a big, big thank you to Margaret Shermer and her family for all their support. Margaret put in a lot of hours transcribing interviews and uploading research links, and we we all owe her a big thank you for helping to make this show so legit. Folks, how about all that great music, like the music you're listening to now from Dave Elkins of the band May, that's M-A-E, and musician Travis Adams, who also donated much of the music you hear in Dogs in Our World. Links to more of their music can be found at dogsinourworld.com. Most of all, I want to say thank you to you for making this journey so incredible and special and memorable. I'm so thankful that we documented all these incredible conversations and experiences. 
help me get sponsors to hopefully pay for another season of Dogs in Our World. That would be nice, actually. Uh, Spread the word about this show online and with your friends. Tell people how they can find my show, okay, and subscribe to it. There's a lot to learn from my journey, and I need you to help me get it into new listeners' ears. Stay subscribed to the podcast for more content, and I will talk to you soon.